Uh, There are many sad things about my job. It's sad taking funerals, it's sad meeting with people struggling in life, it's sad when Christians fall out with each other and you need to try and help them get back together. But without doubt, right up there amongst the saddest things I see is when people give up the Christian life. The thought that people are walking away from the meaning of life itself, that they are giving up the joy of relationship with God, that that they're turning their back on forgiveness and on eternity with God in paradise, on seeing this throne that we've just been singing of, that is desperately sad. But it happens, and you'll, you'll know that yourself all too well. I think back to my days at theological college and friends there training for the ordained ministry who now no longer believe the gospel. These are people I prayed with and, and did mission with. I think of people I've spent time with since theological college who are now nowhere in the Christian life. People at, at Christ Church Ware and St Peter's Harold Wood and All Souls Langham Place and, and now here, even at, at Christ Church Forward. People who professed faith in Christ who I've studied the Bible with. But now they're not involved with any church. They don't read their Bibles every day. They, they're not growing in the Christian faith. Jesus is not their delight. To all intents and purposes, they've given up following Christ. It is desperately sad when people stop following Jesus. As the uh, Apostle John was writing the book of Revelation, the people he was writing to were under huge pressure to give up the Christian life. In chapters 2 and 3, we're introduced to seven churches. Jesus writes to each church. He writes a letter to each church. Those in the church in Ephesus, in chapter 2, verses 1 to 7, had lost their love, their first love, for the Lord Jesus. That's happened to me in the past. I've, uh, I've kept up the Christian life in form, but felt pretty dead inside. When that happened, I had no desire to to know or follow Jesus. That's just how they were in Ephesus. And once that's happened, it's very easy to drift from Jesus altogether. The churches in in Smyrna and Philadelphia were suffering persecution. I've put the references for those churches uh, on the handout. Smyrna and, and Philadelphia were suffering persecution. For them, following Christ came at a huge cost. In Smyrna, they were being put in prison for being Christian and some would face the death death penalty for their faith. Look at chapter 2, verse 10. Do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful even to the point of death and I'll give you the crown of life. Persecution continues to happen in the 21st century. In Nigeria on the 17th of July in Mazar, a small Christian village near Jos, the people of the village woke to gunfire and as they ran out of their homes in fear they were butchered by extremist Islamists armed with machetes. In India recently two Christian evangelists were attacked by suspected Hindu extremists who surrounded them and beat them when they were cycling home after a prayer meeting. And a church service in North India was halted by a mob of Hindu fanatics. The Christians were attacked with iron rods and clubs. Christians continue to be persecuted all over the world. As John wrote in the first century, the churches in Pergamum and Thyatira were being infiltrated by false teachers. As a result, there was idolatry and sexual immorality among them. Look at chapter 2, verse 14. 
as Jesus writes to the church in Pergamum, he says, I have a few things against you. You've people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food, sacrificed to idols, and by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. And then look over to chapter 2, verse 20, the church in Thyatira. I have this against you, says Jesus. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. By her teaching, she misleads my, my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. Oh, those types of people, that kind of teaching is as relevant today as it was back then. Just a few weeks back, I was talking to a church leader in this city. He told me that he doesn't expect people in his congregation who are not married to be celibate. He teaches that providing people are in a committed relationship, they don't need to be married before having sex with their partner. And he teaches that to heterosexual and, and homosexual couples alike. You see, it seems that the teaching of the Nicolaitans and the prophetess Jezebel is as rampant in the church today as it was back then. But be under no illusion, that teaching leads people away from the Lord. And then there's the churches in Sardis and Laodicea. They suffered from hypocrisy and apathy. See how John writes, well, how Jesus writes to the church in Sardis, chapter 3, verse 1. These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation for being alive, but you're dead. Yeah, the reputation was great. They seemed to be so full of life. They were, in fact, dead. They did all the right things outwardly, but there was no life in them inwardly. And Laodicea had huge problems. Now, over the page, chapter 3, verse 15, Jesus says, I know your deeds, that you're neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. And then verse 17, you say, he says to the church, you say, I'm rich, I've acquired wealth and don't need a thing. And you don't realise that you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind and naked. Do you see their apathy towards God? I'm rich, I don't need a thing, I don't need God. And as I read the letters to Sardis and Laodicea, I fear that we at Fullwood could very easily become like them. All the outward form, none of the reality. We're rich materially. We have everything we need. It's so easy to do life without God. It's what I find for myself. As I wake up in the morning, I feel I can get through the day without the Lord. I have food to eat, clothes to wear, a house to live in, money in the bank. I am rich. I don't feel the desperate need to rely upon God today, for today. And when you feel like that, it is so easy just to drift from the Lord and to give up on him in time. Uh, the preacher and author John Piper writes uh, these words there uh, on the handout. Comfort and ease and affluence and prosperity and safety and freedom often cause a tremendous inertia in the church. The very things that we think would produce personnel, energy and creative investment of time and money for the missionary cause instead produce the exact opposite. Weakness, apathy, lethargy, self-centeredness, preoccupation with security. See, being wealthy can be a huge spiritual hindrance. Now, the big point of looking at all these churches is this. The churches John was writing to had pressures upon them that could easily see them throw in the towel with Jesus. And so the message to all the churches in Revelation is this. It is keep going with Jesus. 
Uh, Each letter to the seven churches ends with the same phrase, to him who overcomes. Uh, Again, I put the references there on the handout. But just have a look at chapter 3, verse 21. To him who overcomes, in, in this in this instance, the Laodiceans, to those who overcome this sense of not needing God, to him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. See what he's saying? If you overcome the struggles and pressures, and he says the same to each church, if you overcome the struggles and pressures to give up the Christian life, there is so much more to come. So keep going. Keep standing against all the pressures that would have you give up the Christian life. Whether it be persecution or false teaching or hypocrisy or apathy, keep fighting against those things that wage war against your soul. Keep going on with Christ. And so as we begin this new academic year, and it does feel like a new beginning, doesn't it? I want to say to us, let's guard our lives. Let's be good at keeping each other going in the Christian life. Whatever uh, this next year throws at us, and the chances are we're a fairly large church if you take all three congregations together, so because there's so many of us, the chances are that some of us are going to have a really hard time this next year. Well, whatever this year throws at us, however we're tempted, let's be sure that by this time next year, we're not just still following Jesus, but we, we know him better than ever before. We're more in love with him than ever before, and we're serving him better than ever before. Now, the book of Revelation is written to help Christians keep going. Now, John writes so that Christians will overcome all the pressures that would have us give up the Christian life. And in chapter 4, he gives us, to, to help us do this, he gives us a glimpse of heaven. He wants to show us things from heaven's perspective. In chapter 4, the great assurance is that God is in control. If we're to overcome all these pressures, the first big reality we need to grasp is the sovereign rule of God. And so we come to our first point on the handout. God is king, verses 1 to 6. Look at verse 1. After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven, and a voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I'll show you what must take place after this. John, taken into heaven, he was given a glimpse of what is happening in heaven right now. And the first and dominant sight is of a throne. Verse 2, at once I I was in the spirit and, and there before me was a throne in heaven and someone seated on it. The throne, you see, is front and centre of heaven. John can barely write a sentence without the throne being mentioned. Look at verse 3. And the one who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, a rainbow resembling an emerald encircled the throne. Verse 4, surrounding the throne. Verse 5, from the throne. Verse 6, before the throne. Verse 9, whenever the living creatures give glory, honour and thanks to him who sits on the throne. And verse 10, they fall down before him who sits on the throne. You can't miss it, can you? The throne, the seat of power and authority, the place of absolute rule over the universe. Heaven is not a democracy. Heaven is a monarchy. The throne is front and centre. Or to be more precise, it is he who is seated on the throne who is front and centre. See again, verse 2. I was in the spirit and there before me was a throne in heaven and someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, a rainbow resembling an emerald encircled the throne. Now the one seated on the throne is of course the Lord God Almighty. All the descriptions of God here 
find their reference points in the Old Testament. They're not exactly the same, but I'm sure they're all allusions to the Old Testament. And that's quite deliberately done to say, yes, this is the same Lord of the Old Testament. And so in verse 3, God has the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. There's an emerald rainbow. It's reminiscent of Ezekiel's vision in Ezekiel chapter 1. Again, I put all the references down uh, on the handout for you to look up later. Jasper, carnelian and emerald. These uh, precious stones tell us of the majesty of God. Resplendent, dazzling, stunning. Brilliant colours shone out as John looked on the, on the throne and as he saw the, the God of the, who was on the throne. Here on the throne then is, is our majestic and resplendent God. But the God of the universe is not just fantastic to look at, he is also wonderful in character. And so verse 3, do you see it there? A rainbow encircled the throne. It's a reminder of the covenant faithfulness of God pledged in Genesis chapter 9. The rainbow reminds us that the Lord who sits on the throne is merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness. How wonderful is that? The one who rules the universe is not only almighty, He's also compassionate and kind. The one who keeps his promises. I need to know that when I'm going through hard times. He's powerful but he cares for me. And we're reminded of his covenant and saving action again in verse 5. See, from the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder. The flashes of lightning and peals of thunder, it's reminiscent of the the giving of the law to Moses at Mount Sinai. Again, the reference is on there, Exodus 19. Do you remember as, as Moses climbed the mountain to receive God's holy law, thunder and lightning was on the top of the mountain. Here again, a reminder of God that he's not just awesome and powerful, but also a covenant God who acts to save his people. So with this awesome electric storm of verse 5 around the throne, look down to verse 6. What a surprise. Also before the throne there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. It's an astonishing sight, a sea of glass, a sea as calm as a duck pond. You see, water is like glass when it's perfectly calm. You know how you can see your reflection in it when you look into it, when there's not a ripple on the water. Now, have you ever seen anything like this? Thunder and lightning and yet a sea of glass. Tells us everything is calm in heaven. In heaven, no one is running around saying, don't panic, Mr. Mannering. There is no panicking. Because, you see, when you're in complete control and have total authority, you don't need to panic, whatever the situation. You see, I need to know that when the pressure is on. Think of those faithful Christians in the first century in Smyrna and Philadelphia and those faithful Christians in Nigeria and India today suffering for their faith. They might well be tempted to think that everything's gone haywire but here they can see God's in control. I love the words of Bishop Festo Kavendri of Uganda. They're, they're on, the, um, on the handout again. Uh, he said these words uh, at the Keswick Convention in 1975, around the time when Idi Amin was president of Uganda and parts of Central Africa was experienced revolution. See what he says? Please don't be shocked if you hear that there's a revolution in Burundi, Uganda or Zaire. This is Africa. It's nothing when young countries get revolutions. There are going to get some more. But that does not mean that the man of Galilee has vacated the throne. Christianity has never been scared of revolution. Satan can roar like a lion, but he has no authority to shake the throne on which Jesus is sitting. Aren't they fantastic words? 
See, we may find the idea of God's rule hard to believe when we are bombarded by the pessimistic headlines of the world's press. Sometimes we feel dwarfed by the intimidating power struggle of society. But John was shown this vision and it's been written down for us so that even though we haven't seen it yet, we can know the reality of heaven. God is in control of his world. There is a purpose being worked out. God is ruling. Christ is returning. Goodness will finally triumph. You see, Revelation chapter 4 should make your faith soar. With this vision before us, we shouldn't feel the need to look to materialism for our security. With this vision before us, we'll be ready to stand up for truth and to stand against persecution without fear. You see, the sovereign rule of God deals with our fears and insecurities. Listen to the words of of Paul Tripp, just over the page. I, I read this book called Broken Down House over the summer, found it really, really helpful. And uh, listen to what he says about the sovereign rule of God. When you question or lose sight of the good and perfect rule of the Lord, you can end up fearing the power of another. Whether a malevolent hidden terrorist, a, a very real and immoral relative, or a pure figment of your imagination, you'll perceive someone as having character and intentions that tempt you to anxiety. Only when you are comforted by the fact of God's ultimate, comprehensive, flawless holy authority can you stop being afraid of human authority when you truly know that the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord you can be freed from the anxiety of flawed human rule that is what John is doing for us as he gives us this vision of God on the throne he has given us confidence to overcome because God is sovereign firstly then God is king secondly God the king is to be worshipped verses 6 to 8. See, while God on the throne is the dominant aspect of this vision, we're not to miss those gathered around the throne and what they're doing. Around the throne are elders, verse 4, and creatures, verse 6. And the description of the creatures is really quite something else. Look at halfway through verse 6. In the centre, around the throne, were four living creatures and they were covered with eyes in front and behind. The first living creature was like a lion, the second was like an ox, The third had a face like a man. The fourth was like a flying eagle. Now again, they sound very much like the beings described in Ezekiel, uh, both chapter 1 and chapter 10. There's much discussion over what these four creatures are meant to symbolise, but the best I've heard is that they represent the rulers of the living creatures of the earth. A, A Jewish writer, writing around 300 AD, wrote this, The mightiest of the birds is the eagle, The mightiest of the domesticated animals is the bull or the ox. The mightiest of the wild animals is the lion. And the mightiest of them all is man. So you see, it could be that these creatures represent the rulers of the creatures of the earth. More importantly though than who they are is what they're doing. Verse 8. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under his wings. Day and night they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. That sounds very much like Isaiah chapter 6. Ceaselessly these creatures praise God. It's what they live for. They exist to do one thing and one thing only, to praise God. They praise him for his holiness. Holy, holy, holy. They praise him for his mightiness, declaring him to be the Lord God Almighty. And they praise him for his permanence, who was and is and is to come. 
And so here are four living creatures. And throughout the book of Revelation, numbers are used symbolically. So the number four is the number for all the earth. We talk about the four corners of the earth, don't we? So the four living creatures giving praise ceaselessly is a way of saying this. All the creatures of the world have been created to exist and exist to give praise to God for his holiness, his mightiness and his permanence. See, that is what we are made for, to praise God. It is the meaning of life itself. I've summed up brilliantly in the first point of the Westminster Catechism. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Or as John Piper points out, we might better say the chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. You see, we, we glorify God as we enjoy him. So Piper's great slogan is this, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. As we find our satisfaction in him, he is most glorified through us. And that is why heaven is heaven. Because God is at the centre and everyone in heaven knows that he is everything and so everyone in heaven treats him as everything. And heaven is so wonderful because everyone is enjoying God and making the most of God, which is what we were made for, and so we are most satisfied and he is most glorified and life doesn't get any better than that. And so do you see how this vision helps us stand firm against all the pressures to give up the Christian life? Even if I am being persecuted and when false teaching looks appealing and as I am seduced by the comforts of this world, I am to remember the living creatures. I am to recall that I am made to worship God. And so to give up on him would be to settle for something that will not fulfil me or satisfy me or ultimately even please me. And that's a battle I have to fight regularly. I don't know about you, but I have to fight it regularly. Often I find myself longing to have all the pleasures that people have around me. More leisure time, more time to please myself, uh, to play tennis, to potter around in the garden. More money to be able to go to warmer climes. And so I find myself regularly tempted to drift from Jesus Christ. To no longer see him as my satisfaction. And I want to find satisfaction somewhere else, in something else. Of course, the temptation of the Laodiceans, I'm rich, I don't need a thing, I don't need God. But this vision reminds me, I am made to worship God. The God who is holy and mighty and permanent. As I worship him, I find meaning of, the meaning of life. Why would I want to go anywhere else? God is king. Secondly, God the king is to be worshipped. And thirdly, God the king is to be worshipped because he is the sovereign creator. Verses 9 to 11. Verse 9, whenever the living creatures give glory, honour and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and power. You see what's going on. Every time the living creatures give praise to God, these 24 elders fall down from their thrones. They get off their throne. They fall down before his throne, and they worship him. Now look, this has to be symbolic. Now when you look at the details, you realise it has to be symbolic. Verse 4, these 24 elders are seated on 24 thrones around God's throne. And verse 10, they get down off those thrones and fall down before the Lord to worship him. And that happens, verse 9, every time the living creatures give glory to God and honour and praise him. But verse 8, the living creatures never stop giving glory and honour and praise to God. Day and night they never stop. 
So it must be symbolic language or the 24 elders would never be seated on the throne in verse 4 because every time they tried to get back on the throne they would be falling down before the throne to worship the Lord God again. Up and down, up and down like heavenly yo-yos. has to be symbolic. Exactly who these 24 elders are we don't know. What we do know from verse 4 is that the elders are seated on thrones dressed in white probably not so much the colour of purity but of conquest and victory and they're all wearing crowns. So here's the point, if you lost me for a moment. Here's the point in verse 10. We have this image of victorious kings getting off their thrones and laying down their crowns and declaring, verse 11, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and power for you created all things and by your will they were created and have their being. See, as with the living creatures, it's, it's what they say that is more important than who they are. With the four living creatures, the elders are declaring that God is worthy to receive glory and honour and power. But notice the key link word in verse 11. It's the little word for or because. It's a crucial word for us to grasp hold of this morning. The Lord God is worthy to receive glory and honour and power because or for he created all things. Have we got that? God created everything. Without him... Nothing would be here. Our existence is entirely dependent upon God. He made us and he made everything we're reliant upon to sustain us. Everything was made by him. The air we breathe, the water we drink, the food we eat, the materials we use to make our homes and our clothes, the earth and the sky, the moon and the sea, the seasons and the tides of the sea. Everything, everything came into existence through God creating them. He created all things. Verse 11. And so, not only our existence, but our sustenance is completely dependent upon the almighty Lord of heaven and earth. Now, this is very important if we're going to believe in the sovereignty of God. Whatever your view of the early chapters of Genesis, whether you're a literal six-day creationist or whether you think that the world was created over six periods of time, and I know there are people in this congregation who have strong and well-thought-through views on both sides of the argument, Whatever your views, though, about the early chapters of Genesis, the Christian must believe that God created everything. Please, don't be duped by the latest declaration of the eminent physicist Stephen Hawking. Did you hear it this week? Uh, Did you hear what he said? He has declared that you don't need God to have set off the Big Bang. Now, that is not a position that the Christian can hold. We must believe that God created everything because it's the song of heaven. And because of the way the Song of Heaven goes, verse 11, you created all things. Here's why it matters so much. God being the creator of all things establishes him as the sovereign Lord of the universe. Because God created everything, everything belongs to him. Because God created everything, he is on the throne. That is what they are saying here. Now, as we close, see how the Bible has confidence that God is sovereign because he is the creator of all things. And and turn with me as we close to the book of Acts um, to see how this happens. I've put the references there uh, on the sheet. Uh, The first one, Acts uh, chapter 4, page 1096. And we'll see this link between God being the sovereign Lord because he is the creator which is why we mustn't lose the fact that he's creator. Page 1096, Acts chapter 4, verse 24. 
Peter and John just been released from prison. Look what they say. When they heard this, when the other, uh, the other um, disciples heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Do you see the link? You are sovereign because you made everything. See the same happening in Acts chapter 14 and verse 15. Page 1109. Acts chapter 14, verse 15. A pagan crowd had tried to worship Barnabas and Paul, the apostles. But look what they say. Acts 14, verse 15. Men, why are you doing this? We too are only men, human like you. We're bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. See, the living God, the true God, the God who's really there, made everything. See the link? He's the crea- he, he is the, the one true God because he made everything. He is the creator. And then the famous words of Paul in Athens, Acts chapter 17 and verse 24, page 1113. Acts 17 verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. See the point? He is the Lord of heaven and earth because he made everything. He is sovereign over everything because he made everything because it's all his. That's what's going on in Revelation chapter 4 as we just turn back uh, as we draw things to a close. This truth that God is sovereign because he made everything is at the heart of the heavenly song of the elders in verse 11. They declare that God is sovereign because he's the creator of the universe. So do you see this vision... Revelation chapter 4 is here to help us to see God's sovereign rule so that we will overcome the pressures to give up the Christian life. God is sovereign, so when you face persecution you can be sure that God controls the universe, even the forces of darkness. God is sovereign, so when false teachers bring their alternative teachings, do not waver, keep believing in the one true God of the Bible. God is sovereign, so when materialism seems to be the answer to life. Know that the only place of security and ultimate fulfilment is God himself. That's what Revelation 4 is telling us. So let's stand firm in the year ahead, unflinchingly believing in the King of heaven. Let's live for the holy, the almighty, the permanent God of heaven and earth and may we live to his praise and glory.